Hello guys and girls and welcome back to another episode of Seb Talk Sports, sponsored by Hoopin and Luton, the place to go to for your favourite new and vintage jerseys and apparel from all things basketball. That intro music and podcast theme was created by all pro New York Giants running back, now music creator and friend of the show, David Wilson. Go and check him out on all of his social media platforms at Forza Running on Twitter and Instagram and his music under David E. Wilson across all good music streaming services. He's free for business so drop him a message if you want some beats for your podcast, adverts, commercial, absolutely anything you need. Before I get into this episode I just want to say that if you're not already following Seb Talk Sports across all platforms then please do. You can find me on Facebook Facebook, Seb Talks Sports, YouTube, Seb Talks Sports, Twitter, at Seb Talks Sports, and Instagram, where I'm primarily active, again, it's at Seb Talks Sports. Today is a very special episode of Seb Talks Sports, because I've got my first ever rugby guest on the show, and what a player he was. One of the greatest rugby league players of all time, scoring over 500 career tries and achieving countless honours throughout, to now being forever immortalised in a bronze statue outside of Wembley Stadium, where he scored that famous try in the 90s. 1994 Challenge Cup final. It's of course the brilliant Martin Chariots of Fire MBE. Enjoy! My guest today is one of the greatest rugby league players of all time. A seven-time championship winner, six-time premiership winner, four-time Challenge Cup winner and rugby league Hall of Famer. It's an absolute honour to welcome Martin Chariots of Fire MBE to Seb Talk Sports. Martin, how are you? I'm good. Uh, yes, uh... Had an interesting day, been up early, nice 8k walk this morning, a bit of work and a little bit like exercise, so it's all good. Very good, thank you very much for joining me, I'm looking forward to getting into it. My pleasure. Let's do it. Okay, so I want to go right back to the beginning to start with, so I'd love to know what are your earliest memories of playing sport in general, since I know you also fenced and played cricket too in your youth, and when did you think you could pursue a career in rugby? Um, my earliest thoughts of sport, I think that primary school I went to a uh, school in Islington. My mum was a school teacher. We lived in Hackney. Uh, so uh, because she had a, a job in Islington, we used to travel on the 73 bus to Islington. I went to a school called Thornhill. And my earliest sporting memory must be losing a class cup in primary school. And I remember that was my first um, taste of uh, defeat or the sporting build and, and intense emotion. I remember crying after losing it. Uh, in the final, I think, against another class. And um, it was only <laughs> a cup made out of cardboard covered in, uh, in in silver foil paper. But at the time, it meant so much. And yeah. uh, just the, the, that, 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 that sense of losing and, 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 and yeah, you were, I wasn't losing that much. I was, when I look back at it, I think I was losing a bit of cardboard and silver paper. But at the time, it meant so much. I remember my brother teasing me. And uh, that was my earliest sporting memory and I think that's why I hated losing so much and uh, you know try to do it as little as possible and always give my best and, and, and try and win um, but yeah I went on to um, board and school I took up rugby um, as I say I was a keen footballer up until the age of 11 uh, then discovered the, the game of rugby at Wolverston Hall uh, which was an interesting establishment uh, a boarding school uh, in a London Educational Authority's only boarding school at the time. My mum, being a school teacher, found out about the school, which had been going since the, um, the Second World War. And some of our classrooms were, were uh, those sort of Nissen huts with corrugated iron, sort of <laughs> semicircle things, which like bomb shelters, which is uh, which uh, I distinctly remember uh, from school. Uh, yeah, but it was uh, an amazing um, experience, you know, being an inner city kid and then being exposed to um, the countryside and and going to a grammar school and uh, I, I didn't pass my 11 plus but my brother was very intelligent. Uh, interesting story with my brother. He was um, seven years old uh, when I first met him when I was three. He lived through a, a civil war and I couldn't speak English. We used to take the mick out of him and um, I remember we used to tell him that you couldn't eat ice cream cones. Um, so <laughs> we would eat his ice cream cones. But you know, by the time he was 11, he could speak English past his 11 plus. Myself, who didn't live in myself, who lived in this country all my life, so I said, uh, couldn't pass my uh, 11 plus due, due to my dyslexia. But on the sibling rule, managed to get into Wolverton Hall, learned the sport of rugby. And I would say to him, you know, Chuck, not for you. I would never have been a rugby player because I wouldn't have known what rugby was. So I owe him a, a sense of 
for attitude and um, the fact that he was three years older than me and better me at everything. Uh, he was the first person that I, you know, I, I tried to compete against. As, as, you, as I said earlier, I didn't like losing and uh, <laughs> he never let me win. And, um, you know, I, th I thank him for that because if he did let me win, I wouldn't have probably tried so hard. Uh, a keen cricketer at school, as I say, fencing was probably my, I wouldn't say my first love, but the first sport I got any notoriety and I was always being the youngest of three children I was always clamoring for um you know to be to be seen and to be noticed uh both my older siblings were you know my older sister was only a year older than me but she was a keen sportsman as well I couldn't beat them any in anything really and uh, I even remember to this day the first time I beat my brother in a race I must have been about 20 years old or 22 years old so I played in the Hong Kong sevens I'd I'd uh, gone on tour with Great Britain and played in an in, um, iconic test match at the Sydney Football Stadium. I remember coming back to my mum's house in, in Hackney and just saying to my brother, like, we used, we used to have this thing called the Street Olympics. We didn't have, like, training clubs and, and things to go to when I was young. We just had the street. And we used to have the race around the block. We used to race down the street. We used to do long jump on the, on the pavement. And we used to call it, yeah, the Street Olympics. And I remember... As I say, as adults going down and saying, come and try outside now, I'm going to give you a race. And that was the first time I beat him. First time I'd been sort of trained as a professional athlete for two years while he was a musician. So it wasn't really fair. But, you know, to this day, that victory is still something that, uh, you know, I'll never forget. Mm. And obviously, I, you know, I had some quite iconic races in my time. Uh, some which I, well, I'll say one which I lost at, at the uh, Parramatta Stadium against a guy called Lee Odenwein, who, who recently came out on a podcast and said that he cheated. Uh, I beat Adam Maffey, who was the European indoor 200 meter champion. But, uh, and David Gridley was a European 400 meter finalist. Uh, but, you know, beating my brother in the street is my biggest victory. And, uh, you know, I always take it back <laughs> to the beginnings. And, you know, that's what sport is about when you're a kid. You know, you remember trying to play for the first 15 at school. I remember people like a guy called Cedric Carr and Adrian Thompson who went on to play for England uh, at Rugby Union and who I played against when I was at Wigan in 1995, I think, or six, I think it was, in the middle six sevens when Wigan uh, were the first rugby league team to appear at Twickenham Stadium and, and took out Wasps in the final of the middle, the middle six sevens and Adrian was playing in that game. But I remember Adrian, when I was at school as an 11-year-old, him and the guy called Cedric Carr, who, who a lot of people won't know, is Tom Vandell's dad, who, who played at um, Roslyn Park with me as well. And these were guys who I looked up to as, you know, we were playing in the first 15. And, you know, one day I thought to myself, no, no, I only had aspirations of playing in the first 15, not to go on and, and do the things that I've done and score the number of tries and, you know, MBEs and statues and, and Hall of Fames, you know, but it's as, as you always think of the memories as a kid and just wanted to, to play for the first 15 and, and your aspirations then weren't, you know, high and, and mighty and lofty. And uh, yeah, you know, you do those things and you reset goals and, and you go on. And that's what life is, you know, for me, it's just about resetting your goals. And once you've achieved something, you've achieved it. And, you know, you either plateau there, whatever that is, or you set new go goals and go on and, uh, yeah, you know, I, I always think back now and think to, you know, what, what I wanted to do. You know, I just wanted to do things like, you know, play for Suffolk schools, which I didn't really sort of do until, until my later years or, or, you know, even play for England schools, which I, I, I didn't get to. But, you know, it's the triumphs and the failures and, and which make you, you know, and then you just keep keep moving on. That's it. Absolutely. Okay, so most famous for your time as a rugby league player, of course, which I'll get to. Uh, you also played Union at different stages of your career and made your name as a sevens player in the mid-80s before being signed to Witness in 87. Of course, different variations of the same sport, but entirely different disciplines, etc. So I'd love to know, how did your mental and physical preparation differ from league to union to sevens? You know, I was, you know, known for my speed of my athleticism. Really didn't do much um, athletics in summer. I was more of a cricketer. So, you know, after fencing, probably cricket was my main sport. Uh, you know, played for Essex seconds. Um, um, I think I captained um, uh, Suffolk schools. Uh, and, yeah, so that was um, my main kind of summer sport. But, you know, uh, I, once I left sort of school and I, and I you know, I realised that cricket was not for me, played one second team game for 
uh, for Essex. Uh, my claim to fame is I bowled Graham Gooch out of the nets. I still remind him of ah. that to, to, to this day. Uh, as I say, played one second second eleven game uh, down at Hove against um, Sussex. Uh, got hit for six off a half volley and then realised maybe this is not the game for me. Got, got, to, got to room with Nasser Sain, who was also in the seconds at that time and obviously went on to, to have a great career with England. But yeah, that I think that summer, the next summer, before I went to play rugby league, I sort of um, was started to get a bit of notoriety. And, you know, that's when I just thought to myself, I, I, know, you know, I didn't really have any um, uh, training uh, facilities or anything. I just thought to myself, I know what I'll do. I'll just go and join athletics club. That'll do me good. So I spent... The, the summer of 87 prior to going to play rugby league after I'd sort of played for the, the bar bars and played in Hong Kong. And I remember Doug Lawton, the wooden coach said, you know, he wanted me to turn up fit. So I just thought, you know, I'll go and join an athletics club, ran a few races, you know, was uh, competing with a 200 and 100 meter sprinters, wasn't really winning or doing anything. But, you know, that's when I, I knew that, you know, if I could, um, you know, even just stay in the same frame with, you know, people who, was sprinting was their first discipline. I knew if I could take that speed onto a rugby pitch with the, with the, with the ball skills I had, I, I could do something. I think that was uh, a spot of genius because I really did hit hit the the ground running when I went to um, when I went to witness. But obviously, I had a, a natural degree of pace. You know, not that evident early on in my school career. I always remember that when I was about thirteen or fourteen years old, I, I didn't make my school sevens team. And old schoolmates now who um, you know. Uh, connect with you and reconnect with you on uh, on social platforms always remind me that I you know I was on the bench so I wasn't a, a you know a child prodigy or anything like that I just worked hard at it I was a late developer and when I got to about six or seven 17 and I think when I was playing for Ipswich Rugby Club at the time which was the local town to Wolverston where we were in Suffolk uh, I just noticed I was getting quicker and I was like, oh, I'm leaving people. I was just, I, I literally was surprising myself. And I always knew early that, you know, it's easy to surprise other people, but when you actually surprise yourself, that's when you know you're doing something. And uh, as I say, so, you know, I knew that being quick was going to be an asset for me, but I knew that you, know, you had to add things to that, you know, to be just being quick and running pitch is not going to uh, you know, get you the number of tries that I scored. But, um, I knew that that speed was something that I had to develop and cultivate. I know in this modern era now, you know, we have training cramps and, uh, you know, sportsmen have so much support, uh, you know, from specialist coaches, whether that's wrestling coaches, speed coaches, um, skills coaches. But, you know, back then, you know, you had to go and seek out these things for yourself as a, as a sportsman. Um, you know, if you wanted to be great, you, you know, you had to go to boxing gyms, you know. To athletics tracks and uh, you know to seek out this specialist coaching as an individual and that's something that I did learn early on and bring it all together and learn from other players you know just have that mindset and you know it's a lot easier for players now because you do have it uh, all encompassed in, in, in one place but I had to go out and find that and that was something that, that I think set me apart you know I didn't drink uh, you know, uh, I watched what I ate, you know, I, I was I was conscious of these things, all things now, which, are, you know, you, you go into a fresh environment, you know, you, you know, all your, your, your biometrics are tested, you know, you've got GPS tracker systems, you've got, got so much now to produce that athlete, but, you know, back when I was playing in the, in the mid 80s and, and, and early 90s, you, you didn't have that, but, um, yeah, you know, I, I was aware of the fact that, you know, Speed was going to be a, a great asset for me, and so yeah, I was quite quite conscious about you know um, you know training as, as a sprinter and looking after myself and, and, and not drinking and watch what I ate, and uh, you know I think that did serve me in um, good stead because a lot of sportsmen back then obviously probably drank a lot and, and probably weren't uh, you know so conscious of their diet and, and such things like that. But obviously playing at Wigan. They were ahead of their time as well. They had a physical day fever. We were doing ice baths a lot, a lot before a lot of other clubs, and you know we were having vitamin jab, B12 jabs, and, and taking creatine and, and supplements. And those things, um, you know, did set us set us apart. But I would say, yeah, it was my mindset. I think more than anything, you know, I had all these structures around me, you know, and you had physios and and people looking after your body, and I said, oh. I went to masses and, and you know, as I said, did a lot of training, specific athletics training with sprinters. But 
it all starts from mindset. No matter what you do in this world, you know, it starts from thought. I remember being back at school and just having the simple thing that my life's plan was going to be, I'm going to be the best rugby player that I can be and see where that takes me. I remember that at 15 years old. And I remember that, and I'll, you know, I'll never forget that thought. And uh, and even now, you know, everything starts with a thought. You know, you, you know, even you, to get me on here today, you must have thought, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get some things out. I think I'll get this out. How am I going to get? And then, you know, you that to an action and then you create it with that, you know. Everyone does that, whether that's, you know, we want to have a family, you want to you know, get married, you want to go on holiday, you want to do anything. It's that spark of creativity with that desire. And, you, you know, so that you could do it for little things, but that could be for big things. You know, everything that we create is creating this world, that's electric vehicles, you know, nuclear power stations and whatever. Obviously, people take it on, but, you know, it all starts from a thought. Someone speaks, oh, what about this? Or I can do this. Or that flash of inspiration, you know, the desire. And then you, you don't know how you're going to do it. I didn't know how I was going to be. Yeah, as I say, I was just trying to get to the first fifteen, <laughs> uh, but you, you know, it just it keeps going. But I did actually do remember thinking to myself, oh, "I want to be the best rugby player I can be," because you know, rugby union was an amateur sport. I didn't know much about rugby league or whatever, or, or whether it's going to be a career for me. But I just thought to myself, "If I be, I'm the best rugby player I can be, that's going to have a pretty good life." And as I say, I'm still on that journey now, and I've been retired longer than I played. Mm. that mentality and that hard work obviously did pay off and I think your time on the bench as a teenager was short-lived because you were signed to witness like I said by coach Doug Lawton after being spotted showing exactly what you could do in the Middlesex Sevens and joined the club ahead of the 87-88 season where you won player of the year and enjoyed a career on the Vikings that saw you score 181 tries in 145 games across four seasons so how did it feel to put pen to paper on your first pro contract and how excited were you to prove yourself on rugby league's biggest stage? Yeah, it was a strange situation how I got signed. It was just at the right time, you know, like I was I burst on sort of that union scene after playing in the Hong Kong Sevens, played against the All Blacks in the semi-final. You know, English rugby was a bit behind the Southern Hemisphere. Like the All Blacks, Australia, Samoa would always send um, international teams to the Hong Kong Sevens, but England didn't. So they just sent, you know, English invitational sides like the, the Penguins, the team that I played with. But, you know, I always thought it was, God, wow. And playing against like, the current all-black winger, mm. uh, a guy called Terry Ryan, I think his name was, the whippet they used to call him, and you know, I did really well. So when I came back, that's when I had sort of a bit of a, you know, uh, furore around me. And uh, it, it, it just all, all sort of really, sort of my, that was the birth of my rugby career, really. And um, that's when Doug Lawton saw me, and I had a few... Uh, wars against a guy called Andrew Harriman, who went, later went on to get capped by England. And uh, I was part of the England team that went on to win the um, the inaugural, I think, uh, International World Sevens, which is the precursor to the, the World Sevens tournament now. So, yeah, you know, sort of things around you, you know, things in life happen. But, you know, as long as you're going on your path, uh, you know, of just moving forward and success, whatever it is that you're doing, whether you know, you don't even need to be on the right path in life. You just need to be on a path going somewhere because, you know, what happens? You just change direction. You know, I didn't know that I was going to play rugby league. It was just an opportunity that, that spurred out of nowhere. I was doing something. Somebody was watching me on TV. They had a thought in their head, they're going to get me. I was not on that path to play rugby league. My path was to play for England. You know, I didn't make it in, I played in the final trial in 87. I think one of the final trials for the, for the, uh, for the World Cup. I think I was on... The, in the final game, I think it was London versus the North. And I think there were four wingers on the pitch that day. I think it was myself. I think uh, uh, Harrison, who was the, the captain of England, I think, at that time. Uh, Mark Bailey and Rory Underwood. And I was the only only one on that pitch that didn't go to the World Cup, you know. But I, I think I scored two tries on that day against Rory Underwood. Uh, you know, back in the day, there was no social media. There was nothing, um, you know, I just burst onto the scene. I don't know if you know the whole story of Chariots of Fire and how that song mm-hmm. came about being sung at Twickenham. And so I just sort of really was really creating something. But as I said, there was no social media. There, there was, you know, when I signed for Witness, I've still got the newspaper on my wall. Uh-huh. That was only one paper. Slightly different to when uh, Jonathan Davis signed for Witness a few years later. He was making headlines. I think I had one small paragraph <laughs> or a couple of lines in the, in the Daily Telegraph and that, that, that was it for me. Um, but, you know, it, I felt it was the right decision at the time, um, you know, um, looking back, you know, I think I probably made the right decision because 
rugby union didn't go professional until 1995, 96, when, you know, after all those Costco games between Wigan and Bath, and Wigan playing and winning the Middlesex Seven. So I would have been 30, or I was 30 years old by then. So I was uh, a different generation. That's the thing about life. You know, you, you are a product of your time. I'm just thankful and that, you know, I managed to play in uh, an era where I could become a professional. Obviously the likes of, you know, my younger teammates, the Andy Farrells, the Jason Robertsons, obviously went on to have uh, professional careers in union. I played a bit of professional union a year at Bedford and, and one year at Wasps in 2002, my last year as a professional. But most of the bulk of my career was when um, uh, union was an amateur sport. And, uh, you know, I, I really, I think I really wanted to become a professional sportsman, probably one of the reasons why I tried cricket when I when I left school. Um, and uh, yeah, and so when the opportunity came along to sign for this, initially I, I, I didn't jump at the chance, if I'm honest, and I'd knocked back um, Doug Lawton's first offer. And I remember walking back from Finsley Park to where I lived in Upper Clapton, which is a few miles of what just seemed like that. So I was thinking, so what have I done? Why did I, why did I, uh, you know, knock back that offer? Because I remember going to me and said, whatever he said, and whatever he offered me, I was going to say no, because I wanted to play in the World Cup. I thought it was going to be another World Cup in four years' time. I'll definitely be playing in that. But, um, you know, Dougie managed to, to, to still hammer away at me. Uh, he rang me up. Uh, you know, I had all thought of it out of my head. I was just focusing on what I was going to do the next season. Was I going to move from Rosen Park and go to Wasps? Or was I going to go to take up an opportunity down at Bath? And then during that summer, you know, it was a good three or four weeks later, he rang, rang me up again, Dougie, and said, you know, he's been to the board and he really was that keen to get me, came back with an increased offer. And I just said, you know, this is meant to be. And I said, I said, yes. Uh, and he said, yeah, just get fit, see you in, see you in you know, September. And the rest, I say, is history. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then shortly after your time in Widness and a couple of brief spells in Australia, John Money came calling and signed you to a world record £440,000 fee in January 92, adding you to a Wigan squad that just won its 12th league title. And then three and a half years and four Challenge Cups, five league titles, three Regal trophies, one Lancashire Cup and 186 tries in 159 games later. I think it's fair to say you've cemented your legacy as one of the greatest ever players in club history. So I'd love to know, with regards to the organisation, your coaches, teammates and the club's fans what do the Wigan Warriors mean to you? Wigan Warriors mean to me uh, just professionalism um, it was a place that I um, I was meant to be at really it, even before I went to Wigan it was funny really because I remember signing for Wigan I'd known I knew nothing about rugby league and I'd never been to Widnes you know you know barely seen any rugby league I remember watching the um, Challenge Cup final must have been in that summer, 87, uh, and uh, I think it was when Wigan played, um, Wigan played Halifax, and um, I remember watching the game, there was so much colour and pomp and pageantry, and I thought, it was like, God, that would be amazing. It was very much similar to, to football. You know, you was either, you know, it was very tribal, you were either, you know, black and white or red and white or blue and white. And so that's kind of like sparked up uh, an idea for me. And I remember when I signed for this, I remember asking somebody, goodness, are, are they the ones who play in, red and white and then someone said no no that's they play black and white so I didn't even know witness Wigan wanted I didn't know which W I'd signed for <laughs> that's, how, that's how knowledgeable I, I was but I remember playing against Wigan and they were so professional I remember the first time we, we I remember seeing the Wigan team come in I was in awe because you know Doug Lawton I just signed a witness a couple of weeks played a couple of games I remember we went to to watch the first World Club Challenge when Wigan beat uh, Manly uh, Seagulls at, um, at Central Park in, in the first World Club Challenge game. And I remember it was like packed, packed, absolutely packed, about 30,000 people plus in the stadium. You couldn't, literally couldn't move. It did nothing happen because nobody would have got out of there alive. It was that packed. And I remember standing next to Doug Lord and watching this game, thinking, this is where I want to be. This is where I want to be. And, you know, I really tried to get to to the Challenge Cup final with Witness, and even though we were world club champions ourselves in 89, beating the Canberra Raiders at Old Trafford, uh, we'd won back-to-back lead titles, we, you know, we won so much, but we'd never got to the Challenge Cup final. And I'd been to Wembley a few times, working for the BBC in Grandstand, and, you know, it was just that lure, I thought, you know, this is the big stage, this is, I, I, you know, I was doing some incredible things at Witness, you know, I scored just as many tries at Witness as I had at Wigan, you know, I, 
arguably people might say that the greatest try I've ever scored is not the one I'm known for and that I have the statue for at Wembley, but probably a try I scored for witness against Wigan in the 89 um, uh, championship decider. And I remember Morris Lindsay saying to me, you know, after Simon Woodness, he said, after you scored that try, he said, I knew I had to get you to, to, to Wigan. And so when I got there, it, it just felt like it was home. And, you know, I'd been on the journey and to get there. And, you know, it was, a, a, no, don't get me wrong, I love Woodness and I'm thankful for the opportunity. And, you know, I feel like, you know, they were as good for me as I was for them. But once I got to Wigan, I felt that, you know, this is where I was arrived. Don't get me wrong, it was a lot of pressure signed for that world record fee. But yeah, as soon as I walked there, I, uh, I felt instantly at home. The things that I did in that first season in 92, went to Australia, we won the, the Nissan World Sevens, obviously the Challenge Cup final in the first year and scoring 10 tries against Leeds. Mm-hmm. So playing outside G Miles. So even though 93 wasn't that great year, a great year for me, but 92, what I achieved in that half a season, I think scoring 35 tries, it was literally, you know, the, some of the stuff that, that I was doing, if I hadn't done it, um, you know, people would have just said it couldn't have been done. You know, I get a lot of sticks sometimes for a lot of fans, you know, on social media and they, you know, they like to think that, you know, he couldn't play, he couldn't do this. But as I say, you know, when you score that amount of tries, you know, you just, you cannot be denied. I've all, I always had that, that desire in me that, you know, I didn't think I was that great a player, but, you know, if you do things that cannot be denied and, and, and you know, score the tries that you, you've scored, create the memories and the highlight reels, then, you know, it doesn't matter what anyone says, you know, your body of work speaks for you. And I think that's what really happened for me at Wigan. And, um, yeah, you know, it was a great team. People like Gene Miles, um, Sean Edwards, Fanny Bodka, Jason Robinson. You know, God, I could just talk endlessly about the number of players that I played with at Wigan. And that was, I was in the right place. And I just felt to myself, you know, how can I not score tries when I'm playing in a team like this? You know, there was a lot of pressure and I put pressure on myself. You know, even people say that, you know, mine, I remember being on the team bus after we'd won at Wembley in, in, 90, in 92. I'd won the Lance Todd, scored a, you know, a couple of decent tries. And uh, I still wasn't happy because I knew I hadn't produced that, that iconic moment. And then when I went back in 93 and got knocked out by an old friend of mine, Richie S, who one of my Witness teammates, it was ironic that I spent all that time trying to get to Wembley with Witness. And then this, a year after I left, then they decided to get to, <laughs> to, to Wembley. And I thought, God, I can't lose this game. And ended up getting knocked out in the second half, but still managed to get up, pull myself off the, off the floor. Because I, I knew that when you're in situations like that, they don't come around every day. You know, when you're in situations where you can create a legacy, whether it's a, a Challenge Cup final, a World Cup final, you know, a, a big game, they don't come around. You know, you'll be lucky if you get one a year. You know what I mean? And I played in like five Challenge Cup finals and it wasn't to the third one. That's why I... I I was so taken aback after I scored that try. It was the, the, the range of emotion because I actually achieved what I wanted to achieve. Two things I wanted to achieve in a, in a big occasion in the Challenge Cup final. And then one was to score length of the field try, which I did. And the, and the second one was to, to score a hat-trick, which I didn't do. You know, Robbie Paul went on to do that, become the first person to score a hat-trick in the Challenge Cup final in 96. Ironically, he was on the losing side, which wouldn't have been that, that great, I think. But, um, you know, I did manage to achieve one of them, and that was to score that, that try. And I know at that time, um, you know, that feeling that you know that when you achieve something so great, you feel blessed and it is more than you. It's kind of like an out-of-body experience because you know that to achieve something on that given day, whether it's an Olympic finals, an FA Cup finals, on that given day is more than you because you could do great things. I say, I've scored 10 tries in the game. I've scored 51 hat-tricks in my um uh, career as a rugby league player probably after I'm dead none of those things are going to be remembered because careers can be forgotten but moments last forever and if you get a chance as a sportsman to create your moment be that um, you know a Pele goal or a Johnny Wilkerson drop goal you know to create that moment that you know is going to be lasting and you know there's a statue of me in that pose when I drop to my knees when you create something like that and you know that you've done it as, as a sportsman you think you know it's more than you, you know, it is, it's to be blessed, you know, you could have um, pulled a hamstring, I think it was a, a try that I scored on, on, on TikTok, 
I've put her out. So I pulled my hat out, I think I've got my 400 or something to try. And I'm running down my wing at Central Park. And I'm five meters out and I pull a handshake. And even in that moment, I remember thinking to myself, I've ran this way, I don't care. <laughs> I pulled a handshake, I'm gonna score that try because I always think to myself, I always even think of legacy then, I was thinking to myself that, you know, you run 90 meters and you don't score. It's like, what's the point of running? When I see, if I watch someone's highlight reel and they've run 90 meters and they get tackled, I'm thinking, what is the point of putting that on there? You're only putting that on there because you haven't got nothing else better to put on. So if all you've got to put on your highlight reel is running 90 meters, and you get tackled. I just, I, you know, I mean, even I'm now, if I'm on YouTube, I'm watching someone's highlight, I just turn it off. Like, Mate, <laughs> that's, not, that's not what you want. If you want to run 90 meters, you've got to do everything within your <laughs> powers to score that try. And if not, then you've got to go and do it again. And that's the mentality that I had. You know, if I hadn't done something, it just didn't count for me. I think you want to, because for me, it was creating beauty is that art is that mean you you're creating a you know a, a, you know van gogh or picasso is creating a piece of art you don't just suddenly leave a bit off you finish it don't you and that's what i i i was always thought to myself well, you want to finish it yeah you're not going to create anything but if you can create that one piece then you know it's because you're blessed because everything has come together you know someone who you know was two meters to the left uh, you know, if they were two meters to the right, maybe they would have tackled you because there's, you know, there's lots of times I've, in games where I've, you know, almost scored or I nearly did this or, or people remember they, they got you that day. But, you know, for everything to come together on that sunny day in front of 80,000 people. And that's another thing, you know, if I'd have scored those tries through COVID, I don't think they'd be remembered because, you know, I, I, I feel sorry for, for the sportsmen who are creating magic now because it's not quite the same without that live audience. You know, imagine if you create something that's of some, such beauty and there's no roar, there's no excitement, there's no passion, there's no feedback. You know, I, I'd be mortified, mm. you know what I mean? And just little things like that. And that's why you've got to be so blessed and thankful. There's so many sportsmen who have, uh, you know, not created things because they've what? Because they've died in, in wars, you know what I mean? Back to during the wars, you know, like there's so many sportsmen who have lost their lives who didn't go on to create things or or would have given birth to sportsmen who have gone on to create things. So that's why I say you you feel so blessed to be in this, to be living in that moment. And um, yeah, it, it meant so much to me. And when I talk to people now, they say like, what you would, yeah, when I, and the moment, all those thoughts and emotions and stuff were going through through you. And it's like, you, you're not like, you know, consciously think of it, but your, your subconscious is, is it. And everything that you've gone through before, and the, the trials and tribulations, you know, the, the coming back from injuries, all those times you're putting all that hard work in on a cold morning, getting out of bed and everything, all of it is for that, for that. And when you feel that, you think, yes, for that one moment of pure beauty, which is going to last forever. And, you know, and, and every time I go to Wembley, I see that statue, it brings back all those memories and I can tell that story. And, you know, you attach that story to that and that's, you, you've created something and it gives, you know, some great meaning to what you've, uh, achieved on this planet but on the other hand you also want to go and have fun with your mates and go on lads holiday so it's all about a balance because <laughs> you know you could have too much of that and then you know I think around about you know, towards the end of my career I was starting to think to myself you know so what if you score another try or you you, you earn more money or you do anything you've got to get that balance in life so you want to go and have fun and do other things but yeah you're always going to miss uh, your achievements and uh, yeah nothing is going to ever match that moment and yeah i always tell my kids yeah yeah you being born was nice but um when i was <laughs> on my on my knees <laughs> in front of 80 screaming thousand people some screaming for you some screaming against you to be in that situation in that moment mm. uh yeah you know if your life has got a highlight that is going to be the pinnacle of it and uh, you know nothing else you can't live up there because that is in the ethers, it's not a good place to stay too long. But yeah, it's fleeting. But yeah, I'm glad I got there. Yeah, that is a special try. I just, I never tire of watching that over and over again. Okay, so your level of play throughout your career not only led to great success at club level, of course, but also on the international stage too. Uh, you won five England caps, scoring eight tries, and then 33 Great Britain caps, touching down over the try line a further 26 times. So what did it mean to you to put on that shirt and travel the world representing your country on over 30 occasions? It meant a lot, you know, to represent your country at anything 
is, um, is you know, a great honor, something that fills you with pride. You know, when, you, uh, when you're younger, you know, you aspire, you never think you'll get to achieve these things. You know, you, you shop for these things. You never know where it's, where it's gone where it's gonna land, but you know, it's great responsibility, it's great honor, you know, to, to shed blood on the rugby field, playing against Australia as well. Um, you know, our foes. Uh, I think if you play, if you represent, you know, Great Britain or England against Australia or Germany, you know, that, that I think those two countries. <laughs> and uh, I don't know why, Austin, I don't know, there's something, you know, uh, about competing against um, Australia and Germany and, uh, Thankfully, I've managed to do both. <laughs> Actually played <laughs> for uh, the England celebrity team against Germany. It was in the same game that Boris Johnson came to um, <laughs> um, uh, national um, notoriety because I think it was one of the German players, Franz Beckenbauer, I think it was. He rugby tackled him on the pitch. <laughs> that Boris is going to be known for is obviously tackling that um, uh, little um, Asian boy in... Um, mm. In Japan, <laughs> Japanese boy in Japan, and uh, also on the rugby pitch at the uh, sorry on the football pitch at the Majeski Stadium. And I think I just come back from Spain and I played in that game. And I think if you look on YouTube, you'll see Boris. And I think I was just I was on the bench and I was just coming on and I sort of gave him a pat on the back. That's <laughs> so I claimed to play him. I patted the future prime minister on the back when he tackled the Germans. So um, I can't remember if we won that game or lost that game, but yeah. I've got to compete against Germany and uh, and Australia, uh, <laughs> so yeah, that's quite quite funny. But yeah, to compete in Australia against Australia and take the stick that you take from the Australian press and the public, mm-hmm. uh, it, it was tough. But uh, yeah, we had some some great wins. Um, one Australian saw notably in Sydney in '88, when we won the third test and the second test in uh, Melbourne in '92, and obviously uh, you know Wigan and and obviously I got to play in the NRL the Australian competition for Eastern mm-hmm. Suburbs and St. George as well. So, yeah, I enjoyed my, my days in, in Australia. Um, I got the chance to um, potentially stay out there in 91, but I always knew that coming back to playing for Wigan was the right choice for me. Um, I didn't want to do a Sam Burgess uh, or James Graham and go out and have a career out there because I always knew that legacy is a great thing. And I just thought to myself, I wanted to play here, create a lasting legacy on these shores and I think that was definitely the right decision. I also had, as I say, three sort of um, stints out in Australia with clubs, but I'm glad I played the majority of, of my rugby in England. Mm, very nice. Okay, so I've been to Twickenham to watch England play two times when I was a kid and have vivid memories of singing Swing Low Sweet Chariot, but little did I know until recently that that song is now attributed to you. There's footage from the 87 Middlesex Sevens with you on the pitch where that song can be clearly heard from the crowd. So how does it feel to have that song as a part of your legacy too, as well as that incredible nickname? Um, yes, it was kind of funny. Um, Colin Welland, who wrote the um, screenplay to Chariots of Fire, uh, was a big fan of mine and actually wrote the forward to my autobiography, which came out in 97, I think it was. And um, yeah, he was apparently at uh, Twickenham that day in, um, in 87 and was part of the, um, the crowd who was singing that song. I didn't even know my name. My nickname was Chariots until um, you know, I started playing um, rugby league. And I think the first person ever to call me to my face was uh, was Ian Botham, ironically, when I was ah. doing one of my earlier episodes of uh, Question Sport when he was my captain. And it, as I say, I, you know, I wasn't Floyd Mayweather, so I didn't get to give myself the nickname. People would say, how did you get the name, nickname Charis? So I, I didn't give myself the nickname because <laughs> my name actually was Offia. And anyone who knows me from my school days knows me as Martin Offia. Mm. It's only when I started to play rugby and um, people used to see my name written down and apparently in rugby crowds used to say, I was at his name, he's Martin of Fire. So I was christened Martin of Fire, and then I was also christened Chariots by the rugby crowds at Rosen mm. Park and at Twickenham, and it's something that followed me to, to rugby league. But I'd say, when people were singing that, I, I, was, I was oblivious to that song. And it was only recently when um, I was contacted by the, uh, the RFU Museum, I think it was prior to England's uh, game against, um, against Wales, I think it was, at, uh, last year during the Six Nations. And uh, that was the first time I, I knew anything about it. It was, it was news to me. Um, yeah, I was quite proud to, 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 to think that, you know, obviously I, I'm part of um, rugby league uh, folklore. So to, to, you know, didn't have that much of a career in, in, in senior rugby union. So to, when I was found out that, that 
you know, the song was attributed to me. I, I was proud of it. Obviously, I know about the, the history of the song. And, and I'm always something that you can see the negatives and the positives in anything. Obviously, there's a lot of negativity around the, the, uh, the, the history of the country of England, which I'm aware of with slavery and, and, and the song. Uh, but, you know, and there's a lot of negativity in my history. You know, there's, there's some of the things I had to endure on the rugby pitch as well. But, you know, I, I saw that as I, I took the positive from it. And I, I spurred it and used it as positive energy to, to spur me on to achieve. And, uh, you know, I think the song Swing Low, we can look at it negatively or we can look at it positively. And I chose to look at it positively. Um, you know, whether crowds will sing it again uh, when um, crowds return to Twickenham after the pandemic, we'll have to see. It'd be interesting to uh, be in the stadium the next time that um, Twickenham is full. And, you know, I'll just look around. You know, I, I don't know whether England fans will sing it or not. It's uh, not to do with me. It's to do with the fabric of... Um, uh, you know, rugby in this country, and um, as I say, yeah, we just have to uh, wait for that time, and we'll see whether it will be signed. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so of course, your honours aren't limited to simply trophies. You won for particular games and seasons you were victorious in. But in the 1997 New Year Honours, you were ordered an MBE for your services to rugby football. And in 2016, you were immortalised in a bronze statue at Wembley Stadium alongside other greats, Eric Ashton, Billy Boston, Alex Murphy and Gus Risman. Talking on the statue, you said it was the pinnacle of your career, without a doubt. So what do both of those achievements mean to you, having been retired for nearly 20 years? They um, mean a lot. Because you can, you know, receive a lot of awards, you know, which are about your sport. Obviously, Man of Steel awards, you know, try scoring charts in rugby league. Um, I think the record seven times. But when you get um, accolades beyond your sport, you know, from wider society, and um, that's when you know you really know that you've done something. You know, to obviously even the Hall of Fame still is within your sport. But when you get awarded MBEs. And, uh, you know, I'm part of a statue. Um, these are things that, you know, money can't buy. And just, you know, you wouldn't even have thought it. You know, even when you want to become great at your sport, you're pretty blinkered. You want to achieve the most. You want to win World Cups. You want to score tries. You want to be the greatest of all time within your sport. But you, are, you have no uh, thought or recognition beyond your sport, whether society or the country is going to recognise your exploits. And when that happens, yeah, you know, it's, it's a great, again, a great honour something that you, you're truly proud of to be transcendent beyond your sport and, and, and recognised by the wider society and to be on that statue. And I have a funny story because one of the uh, other subjects on the statue, Alex Murphy, is uh, an interesting character. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, he was uh, obviously a, a great player, which is you know, why he's duly on the statue, but he was uh, you know, a, a successful coach as well. Uh, but also a, 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 a critic, a media critic, a, a pundit, and uh, was, um, oh, how can I say it best? You know, like to be very controversial. Um, I wouldn't quite say he's the Katie Hopkins of rugby league, but um, <laughs> he was, uh, you know, the, uh, I think uh, Murph the Mouth, I think they used to call him mm. back in the day, and um, he used to write in the Daily Mirror. And I think if you go to my um, Instagram page and scroll down, you'll see a picture of a, a newspaper article, which I woke up to, I think on the day of the, the 94 Challenge Cup final. And it was Murphy basically saying that I was finished and I was the best of a bad bunch. And I know you had to see you know, it was a little bit clickbait and, you know, back in those times, he was, I don't know, you know, I haven't really sort of asked him really why he wrote the story or whatever, say, you know, basically saying that I was, as I said, the best of a bad bunch and I wasn't very good and, and this. And I think I touched on earlier that I had a great sort of, 92 uh, half season, but 93 wasn't the best season for me. And I received a lot of stick and people saying I wasn't worth the money. And, you know, Sean Edwards, you know, helped me get through a, pr a pretty dark time in my career because when you're retired, everyone loves you and people only talk about the good things that you've done. Mm. But, you know, life is not always like that. You have to come through things. You have to endure things. You have to be consistent. You have to persevere through the tough times. And, you know, you, you're never going to have a whole career spanning 15 years, it's all going to be, um, you know, sweetness and light. But uh, leading up to that Challenge Cup final, as I say, I didn't have the, the best of times and waking up to that story, and I just thought to myself, wow, you know, all the things I'd achieved in my career, all that stuff that I'd done, that I still was waking up to people doubting you and saying that you couldn't do this and you, you weren't all that great. And so every time I go to Wembley, I see that statue, I think to myself, 
you know, <laughs> the guy to the right of me is uh, <laughs> is one of the reasons why I'm on this statue because, you know, I woke up and I thought to myself, I'm, you know, I felt good and I, I thought to myself, I'm going to create something today that's going to stand the test of time. Because, you know, sometimes you do have that feeling that, you know, you do feel good, you know, sometimes you don't feel so great on the morning of the game, but I had a, a sneaky feeling that I was going to do something that day and, you know, it turned out to be true. And not a lot of people know I did have as we went onto the, to the field, as you do before a big game at Wembley, you know, you're in your suits. And I do remember having that uh, article. I, you know, I, I didn't rip it up. I just folded it up and I put it in my blazer. And as I was walking around the stadium, I had that in in my coat pocket. And, uh, you know, I've still kept that to, the, to this day. Huh. And, uh, yeah, I, I took a picture of it recently and uh, put it in, um, yeah, put it, I just felt I don't think I was going through the loft for something. I've just managed to find it. And uh, you know, put it on Instagram, and so if you go to my Instagram page, you'll, you'll see it. And uh, and I always thought it was it was weird because it was a whole big poster sort of thing, you know, back in the days when people like, used to take cutters out of newspapers. And I thought if somebody wants a poster of me, they don't want finished across the top of it. So it was, uh, yeah, it's one of those things that will stick out to me. And you know, as again, some people say you know might have thought that could have crushed them, but I used it as motivation. I carried it close to me all that day. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to say it's the reason you know, why I did that trial. There's lots of things, but that's part of it. You know, it's that extra bit. Because if anyone has seen that try, you know, knows me, you know, we uh, was at, even at that game, you know, we were under a lot of pressure. That game leads are really giving it to us. And, you know, I took the ball under my sticks. And it was, you know, it was not the kind of no run that I was known for. It was more something that Jason Robson would do, mm. who didn't get selected in that, in that game, Brian Gatugalamala. So the all-black winger who had been recently signed by, by Wigan. And that's there was a lot of pressure on me at, at that time because, as I say, there was Jason Robson, there was Vyinga to Ramala, who was an all-black winger, and me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as three into two doesn't always go. Doesn't mm-hmm. always go. Uh, unfortunately, you know, Jason missed out that day, but a year later had his day in the sun in, uh, you know, going on to, to win the, the Lance Todd the year after. But 94 was my year. And um, yes, and part of it was due to the uh, motivation provided to me by Alex Murphy, who sits on the statue alongside me forever. So <laughs> anytime I go to Wembley, I, I do have a wry smile and, and people don't really understand the stories behind the statue. Uh, I think um, Billy Boston, you know, a great player. I think the only player, person alive now who has scored uh, more tries than me, I said, it's not often I'm in a room. Mm. Uh, with someone who scored more tries than me so every time I'm in a room with Billy Boston I must pay homage to him and go up to him and shake his hand and, and tell him that but um, yeah it's great to be to be honoured to you know the, the stories that go behind you know that, that statue and everyone who's on it has, has created something for rugby league and um, yeah I'm probably the nearest to the modern game yeah Martin I want to some quick fire questions you ready yeah let's do it okay favourite takeaway food Thai Hi, nice choice. Okay, dogs or cats? Uh, yeah, cat. I've, I've got a cat, Jibby, who we've had since 2003. So <laughs> she's, she's around here somewhere. She's licking her paws on the sofa over there. <laughs> so she would be beside herself, even though I do like dogs, but I think cats are just a lot easier to look after. <laughs> mm, yeah. Okay, favorite music artist? <sighs> so many. My favorite bands, it's a toss up between Oasis and Take That. Mm. My favorite artist, oh, God, that's a. That's a tough one. I want to say Dina Bass, just because anyone who knows me, I'm into house music, and my favourite song of all time is a song called Waiting For You, sung by Dina Bass. I'm going to say Dina Bass. Nice. Okay, favourite sports movie? It's supposed to be a quick-fire question. <laughs> That's a tough one. Oh, God. It's not about movie, but I know that um, the Michael Jordan documentary. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, uh, yes, I, I, loved, I loved watching that. But I'm just thinking movie, but this... I don't want to say something corny like the water boy, but I, like, I just love all sports movies. Some of them do make me cry. I want to say Chariots of Fire. I'm going to say Chariots of Fire. There it is. There it is. Fantastic. As a player well known for his speed on the pitch and having done races uh, against other players throughout your career, can you tell us your fastest ever 100 metre time? My fastest 100 metre time is 10.8, which wasn't recorded in the race. It was just a uh, training session, uh, a Great Britain uh, training session that I did while I was at Widnes and they clocked me at 10.8. Eight or 10.88 it was, yeah, which is not particularly fast for a um, sprinter. But when you when you can travel at those kind of speeds with a ball on your arm and a pitch on the pitch, mm. then you're doing, you're doing all right. 
Absolutely. Okay, in 1992 against Leeds, he scored 10 tries in a single game in a 74-6 win. How long do you think it will be until another Wigan player breaks that record, if ever? It's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. As I said, a lot of the things I achieved, if I hadn't done them, people would say they could never be done. So it's mm. never going to happen again. Sean Edwards has done, I must point out as well, mm. but he did against Swinton. But in this uh, modern world of um, top-class sport, yeah, it's not going to happen again. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> okay, so in keeping with the show's scoring system, how well would you rank your performance on the first series of Strictly Come Dancing on a scale of 1 to 10? 7! <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Fourth place, fourth place, all right? Yeah, I did all right, man. I yeah? did all right. You did, showing off that footwork. Love it. Yeah. Okay, of all the game shows you've been on, which did you most enjoy? Which did I most enjoy? I'm not going to say I didn't enjoy Total Wipeout or Splash. <laughs> Let's say question of sport, even mm. though getting my home question wrong oh, oh. was the bane of my life. And I remember to this day, it was Quentin Pongia, and I'm never going to forget that name because he, he's not even with us now, God rest his soul. But yeah, that just stumped me. That question, I couldn't get it. Personally, I loved uh, your appearance on Splash, but that's just me. That's just me. Oh, <laughs> I've still got them shorts as well. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. And finally, for you personally, who's your favourite rugby player of all time? It's a toss-up between Gareth Edwards and Phil Bennett. But if you had to stick me to one, I'll say Phil Bennett, yeah. Because he was like the, the person that I used to pretend to be at, uh, at school. If you go on YouTube and see some of his highlights, Phil Bennett, he had a fantastic sidestep. I think um, it's been voted the best try of all time, either code. Gareth Edwards' try for the Barbars in 71 against the All Blacks. Mm. And Phil Bennett starts off with some brilliant sidesteps. And I just remember, I, I couldn't sidestep. I mean, Jonathan Davis, who I played with, he had a fantastic sidestep. I had to manufacture my sidestep. I would love to have been able to sidestep like Phil Bennett. And that's why I tried to be him. There you go. There it is. Martin, thank you so much for your time today and for being on my show. It's a true honour for me. Where can people find you on social media? Check out anything else you're involved in. Yeah, well, you can chat to me on social media, on Instagram, at at Martin Chats Fire. I'm on LinkedIn if you need to talk about, we haven't touched on the work I'm doing now with Connected Curve and EV charging and sustainability. Catch me on LinkedIn, uh, either go through Connected Curve or or just put my name into any search engine and something's going to come up. (laughs) Fantastic. I'll make sure to leave all your links, especially with all the Connected Curve stuff you're doing, all of that kind of stuff. I'll put it in the description below so people can check it out. Martin, once again, thank you so much and have a fantastic day. And there he goes, the fantastic Martin Chariot Sapphire MBE. Some incredible stories there from his youth as an aspiring sportsman who adopted the right mentality and put in all the hard work behind the scenes to achieve what he did. Make sure to go and check out Martin across his social media accounts as well as his innovative Connected Curb business. All the links you need are in the description of this episode. I've got many more great guests coming very soon, so stay tuned right here on Seb Talk Sports. And to take us out as usual, here's another brilliant track by All Pro New York Giants Run back turn music creator and friend of the show david wilson catch you soon guys